Well, a potential merger among the two spring football leagues, the USFL and the XFL. It appears one of the leagues is struggling to find its fan base. WVTM 13's Chip Scarborough explains the likely merger fans and experts say is a win-win for all. Birmingham Stallions fans are still celebrating their second straight USFL championship victory from back in July. Now comes word the league could expand with reports of the XFL merging with the USFL. It's going to be real exciting. Uh, it's going to have an opportunity to bring players from the XFL over to the USFL and merge those players together so we can truly find out who the, the best players are versus having them play in two different leagues. The USFL recently announced the league's third season set for next spring. The reported XFL merger creates a whole new series of possibilities. We had two sort of competing leagues in a space where we've had a hard time just getting one to be able to make it, right? And so it's uh, it's not surprising, uh, but I'm excited about it because if you look at the way that the leagues will likely merge, there's only one city, and that's Houston, where there's an overlap, where both, both leagues have the same team. So we could end up with as many as 15 or 16 teams in total. Fans say they hope the merger is a good sign that they'll have several more seasons of spring football games to enjoy right here in the Uptown area. It's going to bring more teams in, could extend the season out, as well as makes me believe there's going to be a season four, five, and six. USFL fans say they like that they're not at a college or NFL game. They say that's what makes it unique. We saw how the players responded to us when we started being loud and coming together as a group, and it made us feel really great uh, being able to support them and, the, and their reactions. A tradition they can't wait to continue. In Birmingham, Chip Scarborough, WVTM 13. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hey there, friends. How are you? Merry Christmas to all who celebrate as we drop this episode in the wee hours of Christmas morning. How are you? It's Tim Hanlon, and it's a Good Seats Still Available. Yes, no rest for the wicked or the weary. We uh, we are here even on Christmas Day. Uh, nothing is going to stop us from our weekly pursuit of what used to be in professional sports. Uh, I am your chief cook and bottle washer for the proceedings. We've been do doing this for a bunch of years, and um, we are delighted to be back this week uh, as we reboot uh, our annual, in quotes, uh, year-end roundtable extravaganza uh, with some of our uh, favorite uh, defunct and forgotten sports aficionado friends, uh, our pals Andy Crossley, Steve Holroyd, and Paul Reiths, uh, multiple uh, guests in previous episodes, they. And um, after a year's absence, we're back at it this year uh, to kind of wrap up uh, a little bit about what's uh, occurred uh, in the realm of forgotten sports this year, uh, perhaps a little bit of a, a, an analysis of what's going on at the moment, and we'll get to some of those topics in a few minutes. Uh, and maybe even opine about what possibly uh, will happen in the uh, the year at least to come when it comes to professional sports and all the various issues related to such. And um, our uh, clip there at the beginning of the episode gives you a bit of a hint uh, about at least one of them, and that's Chip Scarborough from WVTM 13 News, the Hearst-affiliated NBC station in Birmingham, Alabama. And as you can imagine, in Birmingham, they do care about this USFL since the Birmingham Stallions are the, the uh, two-time champion now of the second incarnation of that USFL. And 
and to know that it's going to be merging with the XFL, that third version of such, in 2024. And uh, that report came from, what, September of this year. Uh, And I must say, though, that since then, a couple of months ago, not a whole lot uh, new has emerged as to what this merger might look like. Uh, is it the USFL running the show? Is it the XFL? Is the is it rebranded? Uh, what are the cities? Where are they going to be domiciled? Are they going to be hubbed? Are they going to be in local markets? Who's going to be running the television and, and all that kind of stuff? Still a lot of question marks, and apparently it's still going to happen in the spring in a couple of months. So who knows? But that's certainly one of the topics that we're going to be getting into uh, with our pals Andy Crossley, Steve Holroyd, and Paul Reitz, um, and, uh, and a whole bunch of others. Uh, that we will uh, get into, uh, as you can imagine, there's just a, a plentiful amount of topics. So, for example, how about those Oakland A's? Well, they're no longer Oakland anymore. Supposedly, they're moving to Las Vegas. Is that really going to happen? Don't know. I don't know where they're going to play. Nobody seems to know where they're going to play. Even if there's a stadium to be built in Las Vegas, if that even passes uh, some of the uh, the last hurdles there uh, regulatorily and, and in front of voters, uh, even if that happens, where's the team going to play in their in-between state, so to speak? I doubt Oakland wants to have them there any longer than, than they have to be. And I'm not sure there's any place in Vegas, really, that's appropriate. So that could be an interesting journey. Uh, lots of stuff, though. We talk about Major League Cricket, uh, which had a, a very interesting and, and relatively successful first year. Uh, the Savannah Bananas, what a story there. We had Jesse Cole on. Uh, earlier this year uh, and uh, as a lead into what was a wildly successful tour around the United States and and another one to come next year with uh, play in some major league stadiums. Can you believe that? We talk about that. Um, you know, things like the Premier Lacrosse League, which is kind of uh, going from its uh, tour-based thing to uh, a more traditional team model. Um, that's coming up. We got uh, the third branding for the women's hockey league now known as the premier women's uh, sorry, the professional women's hockey league pwhl um so that's coming around the the national women's soccer league is just exploding with a tv deal and and a brand new stadium for the kansas city current team um we talk about that slam ball makes an appearance uh, we talk about some expansion and relocation rumors for the nba and the nhl and major league Baseball and and look, volleyball is going to have two leagues next year, two pro leagues, maybe a third even. Um, League One and and Professional Volleyball Federation. How's that going to go? And 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 we you know retrofit uh, our previous uh, explorations of of pro volleyball uh, back in the seventies and, and and some of the mistakes that they could make again if if they're not careful. And and of course we can't uh, not ignore um, or can't ignore. Uh, the supposed re-arrival, the third version of the Arena Football League. How good or bad is that as an idea? And how much is, how much uh, juice is going to be there? That and a whole lot of uh, more stuff and, and topics uh, is all part of our fourth annual, again in quotes, because uh, we didn't do it last year, but we did it years prior. So let's call it the fourth annual, shall we? Uh, our sort of year-end uh, roundtable extravaganza. Uh, with our guest this week, Andy Crossley, he the uh, proprietor of FunWhileItLasted.net. You know, check that site out. It's a sort of a essential Wikipedia-like goodness for, for stuff like we like to focus on, teams and leagues, forgotten sports and stuff. Steve Holroyd, who um, uh, labor lawyer by day, but um, is a crack researcher uh, and historian by night uh, in things like soccer, 
uh, old oldie uh, time basketball uh, and lacrosse, crosscheck.com, C-R-O-S-S-E, check.com, and soon phillyclassics.com, and a whole bunch of uh, of social media follows, which we'll give you at the end of the show. And Paul Reitz, who uh, is uh, one of our uh, old-time USFL uh, historian guys, but also is the chief proprietor of two sites that we love and refer to on a regular basis, OurSportsCentral.com. Uh, sort of the locus for all things alternative and minor league sports news and stats. And speaking of stats, his other site, statscrew.com, where all the statistics of the current and previous uh, leagues of your uh, world team tennis and uh, the major indoor soccer league and, and world league of American football at al can be found on stats crew. You won't find those in, in other sports statistics sites, but uh, you will at statscrew.com. Andy, Steve, and Paul join us for a uh, fun conversation, and uh, I am pleased to bring it to you as our little holiday gift for you today. So please, uh, let's have a seat, relax, and get ready for uh, it's been too long conversation uh, as we discuss the past, the present, and the possible future of what's ahead for our little distinct genre of forgotten sports and defunctness. Here's our conversation we had with uh, with Paul and Steve and Andy uh, just about uh, five or six days ago. Uh, as you sit back, have that last sip of eggnog, please sit back, enjoy. It's our pleasure to bring it to you. Here we go. To reorient our audience, uh, why don't we um, kind of just go around the room and sort of have uh, each of you introduce yourselves and and maybe uh, a little reminder uh, as to what your adjunct to uh, our little, um, I guess, shared sickness, I guess, would be. Um, Andy, why don't we start with you? Since you came in last uh, on the call, I'll, I'll single you out, put you on the spot. Um, who are you? And um, tell us what you've been up to in our wacky world of sports and that kind of stuff. Sure. I'm Andy Crosley. I created the website funwhileitlasted.net back in 2011. Um, telling the stories of thousands of defunct teams from all different sports uh, across North America. And prior to that, I worked in professional soccer and minor league baseball for about a dozen years uh, in the late 90s and early 2000s. And um, as far as the the past year, I guess I'll, I'll come back to that after the other guys introduce themselves. Sure. Uh, and uh, obviously, uh, one of our very earliest uh, guests, I think you were episode number two, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and clearly that website um, is an inspiration to uh, me. Uh, and I know we had numerous conversations even before I decided to start the silly little podcast. Um, it is, you know, if there's anything that is approaching what a Wikipedia meets eBay meets, I don't know, Discogs for um teams and leagues and and things forgotten in, in professional and not not even per fully professional sports uh fun while it lasted.net is um you know is a bookmark and then some and um I, I know i'm not the only person who feels that way well, thank you thank you thank you for doing it because you keep the history alive um paul why don't we go to you next up into the wilds of uh, wisconsin uh tell us about your uh your various sites as well as uh, you're sort of adjunct to this, and you're also a former guest uh, or uh, of a couple occasions, I think. 
Right, right. So uh, Paul Reitz, uh, founder of OurSportsCentral.com, uh, which covers primarily minor league and alternative uh, pro leagues. And we've done that since 1999. Also owner of StatsCrew.com, which is currently compiling statistical histories of most of those teams, as well as uh, teams from the past in minor league hockey, minor league baseball, as well as the major leagues. I uh, also run USFLsite.com, and really the USFL, the United States Football League of the mid-80s, was the league that got me into all of this, uh, all these alternative uh, different leagues outside the, the big four major, major leagues. And uh, so, you know, uh, the, over the last year, you know, we've been uh, super pleased that we've been able to preserve all the highlight shows from the old USFL, which aired from uh, 83 to 85. So that's kind of been my my thing over the last year. That's the ESPN stuff, right? Uh, the highlight show was done by a company called Halcyon Days, which served as the NFL films of the USFL. Interesting. So we worked directly with uh, the creator of those shows to to preserve those. Oh, that's fascinating. And where are, where are where are you sharing those, putting them up, posting, subscribe? Where can people find those? Is it all on YouTube or is it other places? Uh, uh, not so much on YouTube. Uh, probably the best way, you know, to get access to those would just be to contact me through USFLsite.com. All right. We'll talk about promotional stuff later, but th that's interesting and, and, and a new nugget uh, for yours truly. So I'm, I'm can consider me intrigued. And I would also say, too. Uh, quite similarly, the um, uh, certainly uh, your other stuff, but OurSportsCentral.com is also another sort of um, essential uh, place. I mean, I, I stumbled across that site about, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, whenever you were kind of getting it up uh, and running. Um, uh, you know, it was uh, one of the only places, certainly uh, perhaps a little bit more uh, challenged now with other other sites and stuff and the leagues themselves, but really the only place where you could get like uh, really minute by minute or day by day coverage of all of these, let's call them minor leagues or feeder leagues or all that kind of stuff. And um, in some respects, you're almost sort of the, I don't know, undertaker in waiting for some of these franchises. <laughs> and we do have a gone but not forgotten section on the website where as soon as a a team folds or passes into the nether. We we add them to that section. So there's there's hundreds of teams in there. And you have various caskets and things to choose from at various prices. <laughs> That's right. That's right. All right, Steve, not uh, to uh, bump you to last, uh, you're certainly not least. Um, why don't you give us a little bit of background? And you're a, I don't know, I think you're a, a gold jacket holder for our show. Uh, although it's been a while since we've talked last. Yes, it has been a while. I mean, I... I... I, by day, I'm a labor attorney in Philadelphia, which sometimes sometimes works its way into these conversations. But primarily, you guys know me as uh, someone who used to do a lot of work in American soccer history. Uh, laterally, I've kind of stepped away from that. And uh, nowadays, I spend a lot of time on uh, basketball, pre-merger professional basketball and women's professional bas basketball history and statistical compilations. I, uh, I, but I'll, I'm also involved in other sports with Dave Coleman. We run the cross-check uh, professional lacrosse history site. Uh, coming soon, we're going to start another one called Philly Classics, which will be Philadelphia-centric, but also touching on dead teams and leagues, such as Paul's beloved Philadelphia Stars and things like that. And uh, and most recently, um, really, really going deep into the weeds uh, with uh, professional cricket. And its history in this country, it's actually had one. 
including uh, coming next year will be the 20th anniversary of the failed first attempt at limited overs professional cricket in this country, which Tim and I, we, I think the last time I was on your show, we were doing a podcast about that. Yeah, indeed. And I think um, that's a good jumping off point. We're going to have all kinds of different topics and stuff. So you guys, you know, uh, just to jump right in as, as um, your various areas of expertise um, warrant. But why don't we start there? Because um, uh, I, I think on certain people's radars, but not necessarily, a, it did get some attention for sure. And I think it did sort of trickle into the mainstream. Uh, this uh, revised or new version of what is uh, uh, now called Major League Cricket, uh, again, I guess, uh, debuted uh, this summer with a about a month-long uh, schedule uh, in the heat of Texas and I think also a little bit in North Carolina. Um, what, what were your thoughts, Steve, ab about that? Um, I learned a lot just by watching it and not sort of f understanding the full story. Um it could have gone worse, but uh, I think it was uh, pretty successful on a number of different levels with perhaps some things to to learn going forward. What, what were your thoughts? Uh, it was successful. And I think, and bear with me, I'm probably going to wax a little poetic on this, but it, but it, it works well under the theme of this, pro, this episode. You know, all of us, because we chronicle dead teams and leagues and various sports that don't make it. And the narrative has always been that basically – there's no airspace in American sports anymore. Baseball, football, basketball, and to a lesser extent, hockey sucked it up. I mean, that was a, that was a primary theme in, in that offsides uh, and uh, an American exceptionalism book that uh, came out so many years ago. And that's that was the excuse for why soccer still is not really taken off completely. There's just no room. So Major League Cricket is interesting in that that league, it's, it's, it's a worldwide sport, second – I think it's still bigger than basketball. It's still the second most popular team sport in the world. And it's, and, and, but instead of trying to create space for it, major league cricket's taking a much different approach. It's basically saying rather than try to wedge ourselves into the traditional American sporting landscape, we are going to instead market ourselves to a niche. And that is that league is very much marketed to the South Asian, particularly Indian immigrant community in this country. And you see it in the with the advertising and the broadcast. I, I go to many minor league cricket games. It's an affiliated feeder league. And the ads, you know, it's it's very much directed towards that community, but it's different than what say soccer was doing in the 40s and 50s, in that while they may be marketing the sport to a community they know is going to support it or they're counting on to have it supported. The game itself, the league itself, is very much multinational with the best players in the world coming to play, admittedly only during a short window, but that's typical of leagues, of, of domestic cricket leagues across the country. That's not a sign of weakness or inferiority on Major League Cricket's part. So it's interesting that they're putting themselves out there. Cricket's here, and, and Tim, you kind of a prime example. It's here. We're hoping it's going to be sustained by this, this immigrant community, but in a way that soccer never did, we're also having it here to be discovered by the so-called casual fan. And that way, if it will grow from there, all's the better. And what Major League Cricket's done well, they've invested in infrastructure. They've built, they, that's a cricket-specific stadium in Texas. Uh, they have one finishing up, I believe, in Los Angeles. There's talk about one in the New York area. They're definitely planning routes. They, they have clinics. They're they're doing much more to grow the game than, say, the social clubs that ran those, you know, 40, 50s and 60s ASL teams did. But they're not 
for want of a better way to phrase it, they're not wasting money trying to lure the casual fan. Rather, they're spending their money on, we're here if you want to discover us, and you're welcome if you do. And, and, and it's, it's again, it's a fascinating experiment because, as I, as I led with, all of us have seen how other new sports, even if they've been popular elsewhere in the world, have come here and either never really broke beyond niche status, such as, say, box the cross. I mean, uh, I was at a game today, again, another 8,000 crowd. I mean, that league's been around 40 years, and it's not really taken it to the next level. Other, other leagues and sports have just flat out folded, as we all know. And MLC is really trying this different approach. And so far, it's been very successful. Now the question becomes, and then I'll wrap up, the question becomes whether that four-week season which again is not atypical for domestic cricket leagues because that's the just the way cricket rolls. Um, whether that will be enough to ever be enough of a footprint to maybe attract others remains to be seen. But they they've hit all the right notes. They they've done everything really well so far, and I'm uh, and I'm looking forward to the next season and beyond. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting on the CBS Sports Network broadcasts of those games. Right, uh, it was uh, those matches. They were um, uh, clearly uh, playing to. The audience who already knew what cricket was about, how it's played, the uh, the there was no sort of you know pausing for uh, explaining the various rules and that kind of stuff. I mean, no wincing uh, like the 1970s ABC broadcast with Jim McKay, you know, outlining where where offsides is and that kind of stuff. Uh, it really is obviously speaking to, and I think frankly too, it's also you mentioned the expats, uh, especially that sport, right? They know where the world class. Uh, uh, players are and and what the right competitions are and stuff. So they're probably not going to tolerate anything that's quote unquote minor league. So you got to start with the best. And um, I, arguably you see how many years it'll take to kind of more broadly mainstream, I guess, but uh, no, it seems to be, they can make it sustain with the, um, I don't know, the, uh, the, the latent uh, numerous numbers of people uh, who already uh, understand cricket and just don't have any place to sort of, go to and see it aside from traveling abroad um, could be onto something uh, very unique in this sports landscape. Yeah. I mean, my, the, the responses I've gotten people who see limited overs cricket. I mean, no one Americans just roll their eyes at the five day test match structure and even the ODI, which is 50 overs, you know, per side is to, the one day international is long for people, but the concept of, you know, 20 overs, which is essentially 120 strikes and with every ball counting as a run. So, People aren't just nibbling around the uh, the stumps all day long. Um, it, it has a home run derby kind of feel to it, and 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 even a you know Americans familiar with baseball, not with the rules not being explained to them explained to them all these broadcasts as you point out, they still they're able to pick up enough. And Americans that have watched the one the limited over stuff tend to like it. So again, whether it'll actually grow, I mean, I've always said, and I think I said it during our last show, I think it would be unique if for just uh, for publicity purposes, if they got like a recently retired professional baseball player and, and maybe had one or two of those in the league, now they'll they'll be batting at the bottom of the order because I'm not about to say that baseballs as you know that they're interchangeable and the cricket's easy, not at all. But they can certainly field, and their names would be there, and and, uh, and it would just be just another reason for people to to watch. And I, because again, experience has been I don't know what the TV ratings have been because. It's been primarily on Willow, which is a pay service. There were a couple of the CBS Sports Network shows. I, I don't know if it really moved ratings-wise, but it, it, generally people watch it like it. So it, it'd be curious to see if they're going to try to take the next step um, and 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 you know bring in more people other than expats to see if, if it's going to grow. 
Hey, Andy, I'm going to drag you into this uh, and and watch the segue here. Uh, I, what I thought was really interesting about Major League Cricket is that that there was a, a real um, energy around converting uh, this uh, old, not old, uh, uh, abandoned or forgotten, uh, relatively made uh, a new uh, minor league baseball stadium in suburban uh, Dallas to uh, retrofit and create into the, I guess the pretty much the the main stage of, of Major League Cricket. Um, I don't know what the individual, the specific circumstances of that former franchise in in minor league baseball was, but the fact that it was recycled into a cricket thing is interesting to me. And I wonder, given the state of minor league baseball, which I know is uh, near and dear to your heart, um, what, what's your? You've got an interesting take and uh, uh, some observations about sort of what's happening on the minor league level. I I have a feeling that there's going to be some other, shall we say, minor minor uh, minor league baseball franchises that might have some um some similar real estate to, to to offer to other players or to other entities going forward given what's what's sort of fast consolidating on the minor leagues. No, minor league baseball is going through this massive transition that that really like hit its peak during the COVID winter of 2020 2020-21 when um major league baseball essentially did a hostile takeover of of the National Association of Professional Baseball Leagues, which is the governing body of minor league baseball, sort of unilaterally like axed 25% of the teams. Um, and uh, and there's been a lot of ripple effects to that. So like the stadium that, that, um, that you're talking about in Texas is called Grand, Grand Prairie Stadium. And that was actually built for independent baseball which is minor league baseball that's professional but isn't affiliated with um a major league organization in sort of the way that most people kind of imagine and um you know independent baseball was an area that in the early 2000s like the first couple of decades first 15 years of the 2000s you know a number of promoters had success convincing these municipalities to build them these stadiums you know, that cost anywhere from like 15 to $50 million, usually public money, almost always public money. Grand Prairie was one of them. And then they would have these independent teams come in and play, you know, for over four or five or six years and go bust. And a lot of those stadiums have already been torn down. You know, they're only, they're only, you know, 20 years old. Like you look at a league like the Atlantic league, which is probably the best of the independent leagues. And I worked in it for three years. Um, there's a lot of really well-run, great clubs there but Atlantic League has had multiple expensive stadiums built and demolished in the past 25 years so you know to hear that this stadium in Grand Prairie has already been like repurposed for cricket it's really not honestly that surprising the other thing that's sort of happening in minor league baseball this year that it's been one of the big stories on my kind of radar is this relatively new private equity group called Diamond Baseball Holdings, which in a in shockingly short period of time, you know, just over the last two years, has bought 26 affiliated minor league baseball teams and now owns over 20% of all of the minor league baseball teams in the country, just in two years. Uh, like that number, like literally is changing like week by week as they keep buying teams. Um, and, and that means that they they're doing things that have generally been uh, against the rules or frowned upon in other professional sports leagues, such as owning multiple franchises in the same league. 
Uh, they just bought the Diamond Baseball Holdings, just bought the Worcester Red Sox, the top farm club of the Boston Red Sox here in Massachusetts, where I am a couple weeks ago. And Worcester is the fourth team that they own in the International League, which is uh, one step below the major leagues. Um, and uh, none of this is particularly controversial within minor league baseball. It's just, you know, accepted as a sort of best practice, I guess, at this point. But it's certainly very different than the way that that industry has operated for decades and decades. Um, so anything to do with baseball right now, I just feel like is undergoing these like seismic transitions. We had, uh, as you know, we had uh, Jesse Cole um, on uh, our show earlier this season prior to the uh, the launch of the Savannah Bananas uh, uh, U.S. tour this year. Um there is at least a bright spot there or, or arguably, you know, something uh, different afoot. Right. Maybe I'm, I, I, I we did talk about a little bit of this with, with Jesse about sort of like, you know, why now to sort of go on the, uh, uh, you know, on the independent circuit, so to speak, and, uh, and and push the envelope on rules and and the entertainment kind of thing. Um, but I'm curious about what your thoughts about the bananas are and if it's helpful or hurtful. Uh, to the minor league thing, given what's sort of transpiring on that front and maybe the hollowing out of the minor league game as we, as we've known it for years. I love the bananas. Um, I, I don't do know too. what, it, I don't know what's impact on minor league baseball is. Um, <laughs> in one way, I think there's probably a positive impact because I think people sort of, in a, in some way kind of perceive it as minor league or minor league adjacent. And then the, when you can't get a bananas ticket, which you cannot, um, you know, maybe that causes people to check out a local minor league club instead. But I, I mean, I, they came through the Northeast here this summer and they actually played in the stadium about 10 minutes from my house um, in, in Brockton, Massachusetts, where I was the, the general manager of that stadium 15, 16 years ago. And um, yeah, that stadium's fallen on hard times. It's sort of, like similar to what I described with the Grand Prairie Stadium, it's kind of rough around the edges. It's hosting like amateur collegiate wooden bat league baseball now. And, um, you know, there were tickets for those games going for hundreds and the, the, the bananas visit to town, you know, hundreds and hundreds of dollars on ticket resale sites. I mean, it was shocking. It was like more than NFL tickets. Um, and, uh, you know, around the time they came through, I took my son, who's eight years old, up to Portland, Maine to see a Portland Sea Dogs game. Very well-regarded 30-year-old minor league team. And, you know, it was a good time. It was fun. But I have to say the promotions felt really stale. You know, I'm just watching the same old sort of hackneyed sort of vaudevillian dizzy bat race kind of stuff that every it seems like every team around the country has been doing now for 30 years. And my son loved it, but you know, for me, I, I, having probably been to worked or been to five or six hundred minor league games, I was like, boy, this feels like an industry that is just creatively exhausted. Nothing new under the sun. And then the bananas come along, and it literally is very new. Um, and it's because they've they really have looked at things like just even the fundamental rules of the sport and unilaterally changed it for the purposes of their tour. Having said all that, I mean, you have to appreciate that at the end of the day, it is sort of like a Harlem Globetrotters type of thing. Like you're watching this incredibly entertaining like variation on the sport, but it's not a competitive 
you know, you, you wouldn't want to watch the Savannah Bananas join a league. Um, it, it's fundamentally an entertainment product, but but they're so much better at it, that entertainment product than anybody else is in minor league baseball right now, that it's really sort of like kind of man among boys situation. And Jesse Cole's kind of a genius in that regard. I, I think it's a really good point. I, I, um, I think on a promotional level, right, it's almost kind of going back to the uh, to the roots and to the inventiveness of of how sports had to kind of stick out and and you know whether you did barnstorming or whatever, right? It's um, there's some lessons to be learned there uh, uh, from and not just you know minor league baseball, but um, but but uh, the big leagues and, and other leagues for that matter, right? It's uh, it's just it, I think his his mantra tends to be sort of fan first and. Um, it when I hear that in say come out of the mouths of people like Ted Leonsis who just decided that he's going to you know rip out the roots of of the Washington D.C. teams that he owns and move across the river even though it's only a few miles away it's kind of like putting a dagger in the heart of downtown D.C. Those words about you know uh, how much we care and how much we the fans first and great experience and this stuff kind of rings hollow when you know uh, the bigger check kind of lures you away. Well, you know, there's a Forbes profile of Jesse Cole earlier this year and his sort of quote in it that's sort of ascribed to him as sort of his mantra is, imagine the best possible fan experience. Imagine what the best possible fan experience is and do that. Don't settle for the way things have been done before. The interesting thing is probably every minor league operator would tell you that that is their personal mantra. And yet all of them would then turn around and trot out their 10 year old, like human sumo costumes and make you watch that for the 50th or 60th time, you know, that season for the eighth or ninth year in a row. Um, So I think it's a, I think it's a thing where people in that industry sort of have this self-regard of being inherently creative sort of PT Barnum type figures, but most of them, are not they're functionaries <laughs> you know uh, jesse cole's the real deal um so he actually is doing things that are new and breathing like completely fresh life into it yeah i uh, i hope i get a chance to see him uh th- this coming year i didn't get a chance to see them when they were around here and, and he and i were talking about to be coming up uh, up in wisconsin to see them and i just i couldn't make it work but uh, i i agree i uh, and it's fun to watch and I, who knows maybe there'll be some other ones that might similarly find uh, a path to doing something similar and, um, you know, Washington generals-esque perhaps. All right, Paul, let me uh, let me spin back to you because um, I think one of the big topics of this very moment, especially amongst football fans, is what the hell's going to happen in 2024 with these still uh, officially still separate uh, and distinct spring leagues. Um, the uh, second iteration of the USFL and the third iteration of the XFL um, it's interesting. I wonder what your take is, both from your historical perspective as well as your current uh, our sports central kind of perspective. Because when I look at my various feeds on social media, I see teams in both leagues and and both leagues themselves saying that we're signing these folks, and uh, you know it's kind of like seemingly business as usual. But um, we've certainly seen plenty of evidence to show that a merger essentially is underway. What, what are your thoughts, number one? And number two, what do you think is going to play out uh, in the next number of months, if you have any insight? And both leagues have, you know, acknowledged that there's a, a merger in the works, that they sought regulatory approval, which has apparently been granted within the last couple of weeks. Uh, so it's going to happen. Uh, there's going to be a, a, com- a combined league that starts on March 30th of this next year. 
They don't, they haven't announced the lineup of that league yet. Uh, there's probably some teams that are shoe-ins to make it, uh, but we don't even know the number of teams yet. Uh, looks like anywhere from, from eight to probably topping out at 12 would be the most. So we're, uh, Andy, I'm sure is, is chomping at the bit because we have some teams that are going to die the moment that that thing is announced. Uh, so, you know, it, it's going to happen and it is one of the, the bigger stories just because of the economics of these leagues. Uh, you have the Fox television network, which owns the USFL and you have the XFL, which, uh, literally, uh, was funded by tens of millions of dollars from Redbird Capital. Uh, so these are are some very well, uh, I should say, relatively well-heeled organizations within this sphere. If you look outside the the big four sports leagues, these are these are some really well-funded organizations, and they're they're going to be combining forces now. Whether that means that we get something that's actually stronger or not, uh, that's open for debate. Well, I yeah, it's also interesting too, frankly, to kind of speculate as to sort of like where the you know, where the threads are being pulled from, right? Because, you know, obviously an underlying undertow, an undertow to all these conversations, right, is is the money part, the business, sports is always, especially on the pro level, has always been about business. And we've talked about that, that nothing is new, if you will, under the sun, just the players and the people and the uh, the machinations behind the scenes. But, but private equity is a kind of a relatively new asset class to kind of really full bore into this. And and you've mentioned it with Redbird and, and some other entities, right? But I, my suspicion, though, based on my reading of the tea leaves, which is indicative of nothing, is that maybe Fox uh, Sports, which is doubling down on, and their Fox, uh, the Fox uh, parent company, right, has really doubled down on their future in the media universe as being more about uh, news and sports and more sort of, you know, more traditional live broadcasting than you know content in a library and that kind of stuff and and um i it almost feels to me like they are uh seeing this more as a, a television product first and foremost um, but yet i think the majority of the investment per se right came from the xfl side right i mean it didn't take much for fox to kind of rip off the old usfl uh trademarks and and graft it uh somewhat quickly hastily upon this spring league thing that was kind of going on uh sort of quietly in the corner uh and kind of you know make it something to pay attention to um before the xfl's uh, third version came about right so it's interesting how how the fox sports people are kind of playing with um i don't know i'd call it materials than it is investment per se um then and the xfl folks who actually have a bunch of the dough and arguably some of the better uniforms and logos <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I, I I think that the XFL put forth a, a better product. Uh, I agree. And and part of that was just being in front of live audiences. They had stadiums for every team. The USFL uh, in year one only played in Birmingham, so three out of the four games every weekend were in front of no one. And this last year, they transitioned to kind of a hybrid where. About half the teams had kind of a home stadium. Canton was uh, a different neutral site. Uh, and it still didn't seem like it worked all that well. It There was something, uh, maybe the XFL had a little bit more of an edge to it. Uh, because even in front of a crowd of 6,000 in Vegas, at least those fans were into the home team. Whereas 
outside of Birmingham, maybe Memphis, you had a hard time finding that in the USFL. Uh, now you look at the economics of what happened, you know, uh, Redbird certainly has a lot of money. For those unfamiliar with Redbird, Redbird's apparently exploring some interest in in buying a significant chunk of Paramount, which would give them the CBS network. This is a, a very well-heeled group of people. Uh, on the other hand, for the USFL, you have Fox, uh, also very well-heeled. It, it sounds as if Redbird may have reached out to Fox, but I'm, at the end of the day, I'm not exactly sure that it matters. What matters is that whoever made the call, the other side picked up the phone and they, they carried these conversations forward. That that probably lets you know that the economics uh, in the short term have been pretty painful for these entities. They're losing a lot of money. Uh, and yet what Fox sees is that one of the few things that's still holding attention for broadcasters is live sporting events. The downside to live sporting events is that you have to pay rights fees and sometimes tens or hundreds of millions of dollars in rights fees. Well, if they can own an entity, they can not only televise live sports, but not have to pay any rights fees. And they they get all the equity out of that organization. Uh, I think they're they're probably pretty realistic that it's going to take a while to build that. Uh, so if there's a kind of a silver lining in all the losses and the XFL, you know, admitted that they lost $60 million last year, uh, the USFL claimed they made a profit at some point and yet lost viewership uh, compared to the XFL this last year. So the, the economics in the short term are pretty painful. And I think that brought the, the two sides together. At the same time, the, the overarching landscape might be what's inducing some patience from Fox in this whole project. They want to be able to broadcast live sports, one of the few things still holding ratings in the broadcast industry, and they want to limit their exposure on rights fees. And in this case, they'd be limiting them to zero. So let, let's use that as a segue and, and more sort of round robin stuff. So guys, you know, virtually raise your hands and your voices as we kind of go through some of these other conversations. But 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 Paul's bringing up sort of a, a really important uh, component of all this, which is, quote unquote, television, whatever that is anymore. Right. Streaming and uh, and broadcast versus cable and, and RSNs, regional sports networks and all that stuff. There's there's no question that there is an absolute upheaval going on in the media world uh, and the previous economics by the way, which have been largely the things funneling the ever-increasing salaries in a lot of these leagues uh, is being uh, supremely challenged, right? Uh, save for, let's say, the NFL, right? Um, I guess I'm really... Uh, uh, it's also interesting, though, to see now how uh, literally over the last couple of years, uh, the sheer um, uh, increase of uh, leagues uh, and uh, coverage, whether paid for or uh, you know, a resource shared, a time bought for things that would arguably been a tougher sell uh, ratings wise uh, in just a few years past. The WNBA, for sure. The National Women's Soccer League, for sure. Um, you know, a whole bunch of uh, these entities, uh, Athletes Unlimited, you know, this sort of thing for for women's sports that's sort of a, a collective Um you know, Major League Rugby's made a couple of appearances on on the Fox networks and stuff. It's it's just to me, it's very interesting how what and and by the way, on the mother ships, right? I mean, 
we we just you know we just had uh, on Sunday on ABC right you're going to have uh, the NCAA Women's Volleyball Championship. I mean, it's never been a thing on national broadcast television. Maybe ESPN or ESPNU. Um, I guess I'm just I'm I, I, it's a, I, there's no there's no answer into that. But I'm just I'm curious to what you guys think is sort of happening here. And do you think those events and those leagues, fledgling as they might be, Premier Lacrosse League being another one, um, there almost seems to be like a, a, a doubling down uh, to try to make a go as much as possible for some of these leagues, even though they don't have a whole lot of history behind them as television properties. Well, I think it's funny. This topic sort of touches on something I said and something Paul just said. I said earlier about how the traditional narrative was that the American sporting landscape is full. And that was true until we got to this era that Paul referenced where live broadcasts are the only things holding viewers' attention the only thing people are not DVRing so they can then blow through the ads. And so it's, it's one of the few products the networks can still charge for. And so now, in a way, space is being created in the sense that uh, content, you have sports being created, but in some ways, is it really a league or is it is it rather content? I, mean, I think Premier Lacrosse League is a prime example. I mean, Rabel had lots of good ideas that he's now backing off of that I guess we may, we may touch on later, but... Yeah, initially, he he essentially formed that league to give the NBC uh, Sports Network something to televise. Yeah, and I mean, it, it it really is. And I, you know, as I mentioned to begin, I was a big fan of the original USFL. And one of the things when they were forming that league, they had had conversations with ABC. ABC televising the league was almost a certainty, but ABC made it absolutely clear they would not sign on until after the USFL announced itself and had its ducks in order that they did not at all want to appear as they were the 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 reason for this league forming when in reality of course the league needed a television partner to form but abc was so afraid of that appearance and you'll fast forward here 40 years and there's no question that exactly what steve talked about is is the case that this is really a lot of television content when the new USFL is playing games in front of empty stadiums simply so it can be televised on one of uh, the NBC or Fox networks, of course that's what it is. There's not even an attempt to draw viewership. And, you know, I made mention of the XFL losing $60 million this last year. Well, the NWSL, women's soccer, just signed a four-year $240 million worth of broadcast deals, 60 million bucks a year. So how far away are these leagues actually from justifying their existence? I want to jump in in a second, but I, let me maybe set up the table there for that, because I, I, I do think there is that other sort of a tributary in this conversation. That's the rise of women's sports to to higher and higher levels, both on the collegiate and the pro levels. And I, um, I you know, I guess the cynic in me would say, and the media uh, professional, uh, consultant uh, day job guy in me would say, well, the women's uh, rights stuff are probably less expensive, right? Um, and it's not as much of a risk for a CBS, for example, to to double down on w- NWSL stuff and, you know, the WNBA and, and you know, and, and now the rise of, of the reincarnated women's hockey league, the professional women's hockey league and uh, and that kind of stuff. Andy, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but I, or Athletes Unlimited, the whole proposition is to prop up women's sports in a sort of a round robin and and uh, individually uh, beneficial kind of way. 
Uh, it almost feels like it's a, a a marriage made in heaven where it's the the rise of popularity of, of women's sports, but also a tumultuous time in media where uh, the opportunities to stand out and relatively inexpensively are are probably more ripe than they've ever been. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't presume to be a media expert, so it, it's hard to say. But I, I just I, one of the things that Steve brought up just a second ago, going back to like the USFL, that I think is really interesting is like if you look at the original USFL in the eighties you know, that produced multiple Hall of Famers and these these teams that many people still remember fondly and had good ratings and things like that. You, you know, eventually it went out of business and you're like, well, it went out of business because the various rich guys who who uh, invested in it sort of lost confidence in the direction and, and were sick of absorbing the losses and sort of like the reasons why countless leagues have gone out of business. Um, and what like kind of like middle-aged sports fans like us who are aware of these leagues would say, you know, that's what caused that league to, you know, go bankrupt or to shut down. And I think what Steve's bringing up is like a lot of these new leagues, it's a totally different thing. It's like if the new USFL or the combined USFL XFL goes out of business, is it really like a league going out of business or is it a network canceling a series? Exactly. Yeah. Um, so what I would say yeah. is if, if they cancel, you know, if, if Fox continues to be like the managing partner of this relationship and that they, they pull the plug after 2024, like to me, that's not really any different at this point than just saying like, you know, we're going to be done with stranger things after the fifth season. Um, and in which case, like the story of that league becomes a lot more like opaque sort of boardroom politics and and doesn't really have anything to do with the, the metrics that we've always used in the past, like, you know, ratings or butts in seats or things like that. Like for things like a lot of these streaming services, we don't even have any idea of the ratings because there's nothing like Nielsen that gives you any transparency into who's watching things or not. So I, I think it's like a whole new world. And, and, and that's why I say I don't presume to be an expert in even assessing anymore, like why people think these properties are, succeeding or failing or valuable or not valuable it's really like this sort of like algorithmic like inside baseball kind of stuff that would be really difficult for people to understand from the outside certainly that's how i feel you know a women's sports question is interesting because i, I don't know i personally i would, would not um like equate something like nwsl's recent like meteoric growth with something like Athletes Unlimited or anything like that, or some of these startup leagues like Professional Volleyball Federation or League One Volleyball that feel very uh, sort of bootstrapped and long shot and things like that. Like NWSL now has like a pretty strong like 10 year um, track record and, you know, they've got people with serious money behind it. And I think the important thing for them now is that they have, like female, it's very sophisticated, deep pocketed business people who are investing in it for the long term. And, you know, I worked in the predecessor league to the NWSL for four years and ran the Boston franchise. And most of the owners in that league were like people who are in there because their daughters played soccer. That felt very much like sort of passing fancy kind of hobby-ish sort of investment and when people saw the losses they just turned green and you know got out 
Um, that's not the kind of person who's investing in those leagues today. Um, so, you know, I, one of the quotes I read from one of the there's 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 two startup women's professional volleyball leagues coming online in the next, you know, 12 months. One's Professional Volleyball Federation in January and the other one that's called League One Volleyball at the end of 2024. One of them, I think it was League One, you know, what one of the owners sort of saying, like, you know, oh, I'm thrilled for the opportunity to bring this to xyz city and i've got two daughters who play volleyball and i was like oh here we go again <laughs> like the, that's the last thing i want to hear an owner say like you know they they would they should say why they have a faith in the business um so nwsl's rounded that corner they're far more sophisticated than a lot of these other organizations and i, I don't think they should be really compared to anybody except maybe wmba those those two are just in a different league than anywhere else. Would another way of of, of saying that also might be another way of saying that maybe vo- the, these two volleyball leagues need to uh, start and go under for the third version to come about where they finally will get it right, maybe just like soccer did. Because I mean, look, people forget, right? I mean, WPS and um, uh, and the league uh, uh, before that, what was uh, the WSA, Lucy. right? No, um, right? You know, and I, it's it's been a, it's been a it's been a bunch of moments, right, to get to this point. Sure. I mean, yeah, but at the same time, you have like National Lacrosse League. It's pretty much, for the most part, been the league for three decades and, you know, had a couple of very brief predecessors like decades earlier, but they've mostly been able to hold it together through lots of trials and tribulations. I mean, there's so many different ways it could go, but I guess to your point, like if you said who's going to be the next merger after like the USFL and XFL merging, I would probably say I'd put my money on those two women's volleyball leagues, you know? Um, oh, joining, sorry. joining forces. Yeah. No, yeah, I get it. So, um, all right. So let me just throw out some other ones. Uh, also promised for 2024 is, wait for it, the 3.0 version of the Arena Football League. Anybody oh. intrigued by this or or think that this is going to uh, go better than the other versions? No. Uh, I'm intrigued in the same way that I am when I pass a car wreck. Yes. I just do not have any confidence in this group. Uh, I haven't seen any money at play. I I don't see any sports experience in any of their management. This seems to be a slapdash effort at every turn. They took the remaining teams from a, a, a low-level indoor football league, which was falling apart, and rounded out its lineup with them. Teams in Salina, Kansas, and Billings, Montana, uh, Dodge City, uh, I mean, these are ridiculously small markets, and yet they're trumpeting themselves as the rebirth of this wonderful league, which did have its heyday at one point, uh, but which never really proved itself economically. And now you're trying to, to to come in with people who don't understand any of any of the sports market. I don't believe who uh, held a conference, a press conference in New York City for some unknown reason, even though it looked like it was a, a banquet hall at a day's end. And they announced a schedule that now as teams are releasing their individual schedules with dates actually filled in, had no bearing on who anyone's actually going to play. It just has been a ridiculous effort from my perspective. And Andy, if you've seen anything differently, I'd love to know. No, it is a complete joke. And it's in line with when you see like some 
metal band from the 80s that had a couple gold records and now the bass player is out touring under the name with nobody else from the original band playing like state fairs and bowling alleys like that's what this is um you know they scraped together enough money to buy you know the name out of bankruptcy court and other than that it's everything that paul said it's like people with no experience no money no common sense in terms of where they put these teams it's it's a hardly even worth considering yeah it's funny andy just used the metaphor i was going to jump on i mean i don't know much about pointy ball but when i see the stuff about arena league it, it strikes me as a, a lot like indoor soccer and, it, and it's almost nostalgia it's like oh this was big once for a hot minute we can bring it back and, and like andy said we don't have the original we'll get one guy who might have been involved or a name that might be recognized but we'll bring it back and, and, and it can it can come back again and these folks don't realize that whatever window of opportunity they had, indoor soccer, arena football, it's probably a couple other sports you can pick. That there, there, there was a moment and it's gone. Uh, yeah, it's just gone. I mean, and and like both Andy and Paul said, and I've seen this on posts on social media, people that like arena football all say the same things. Who are these people? There's 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 no there's we don't see any real money here. We don't see any real sense of commitment. It's really just a joke. And Paul, you, you've been, your your sites have been chronicling the uh, the the diaspora of what ha- uh, of the AFL over those years, right? The IFL, and uh, it's not, I guess, indoor football is the appropriate term because arena football is a trademark thing. But you know that that's been a slog and a half, right? And I, you know, uh, players, and I, I don't know how the economics of all that works. And you know, God bless the Omaha beef, right? But I, I just, um, <laughs> I, I just don't know how one plays and makes money, and and I, you know, then, then again, I'm not in those markets, but. Um, it's been, it's kind of like the, the, the dark corners of a professional football, uh, since, right. Well, and especially now, I mean, you look at, uh, these guys are, are making a couple hundred bucks a game, even in the best league that there is, which is the indoor football league. So there's not a whole lot of money to be made there. And this last year you had 16 outdoor teams between the USFL and the XFL. If you weren't in the USFL or the XFL last year, you are so far off the professional radar that seeing you get to any point where you're going to be paid a living wage, it's really, really difficult. It's a very low probability thing. And the the Arena League now, they're promising to pay something around $1,000 a game for 10 games, which is still... 10 grand for the season. So many players won't play for that. That might not cover their insurance for God's sakes. No, no. And you're not going to pull them from this USFL XFL combination. You're not going to pull them if they have any real NFL practice squad aspirations. They'll make that in a week on an NFL practice squad. So it, it, to me, the whole thing makes no sense. You also have to look at like a lot of the people who are organizing these things are, and I'm speaking obviously not about the arena football league in in particular, but if you go back, you know, 30, 40 years at these real sort of um, obscure corners of the sports marketplace, like I know one that'll make Paul like chuckle, but like, the revival of the American Basketball Association um, throughout the early 21st century. Like a lot of these are just conventional financial 
scams that are dressed up in the clothing of professional sports leagues. So for example, like it's not uncommon to see some of these teams um, sold as investments on like the um, over-the-counter securities market, like pink sheet trading, where people are selling them essentially as like any stocks and they're being sold more or less by like boiler room operations to people who who have these fantasies of professional sports ownership. And those are the ones that you see blow up after a team like either never takes the field or plays like three games or four games. And, you know, Paul's website is one of the few places that is actually like, you know, provided, you know, aggregated coverage of those things and, and shows that there, some of these people have like, you know, you see the same names pop over up over and over again, but they have track records of deception of moving from sport to sport. And they, and I think they laser in on the kind of things that Steve just identified, like, indoor soccer or arena football, these sort of degraded fads that have that have come and gone. And they see that as their opportunity to make a quick buck on somebody who's not sophisticated. Uh, that's exactly right. And you do see some of those names pop up over and over. And I think the reason they gravitate toward the indoor soccer and the arena football is that they can kind of run it on the cheap. They can get a, something up and quote unquote running to some degree that they can then start to sell off shares or sell the whole thing off. And you've just kind of seen that cycle repeated. And I sure hope that's not what this new arena football league is doing. But if, if there's any real money in that league, it has not showed its face yet. Yeah. Along those lines, like, like I think Andy was saying, or maybe it was Paul Bain, the arena's, does make it a little easier to do it on the cheap. And that's why you saw, uh, like last year, of all things, a rival box lacrosse league. I mean, <laughs> NLL is hardly flourishing, but someone started a league and, you know, put teams in Trenton and Norfolk, Virginia, you know, just places that are not major league by any stretch. But it probably was. It was someone saying, hey, this is lacrosse. It's the next big thing. Look, all these kids are playing it. We're going we're gonna to put these teams here. And, and it lasted about three weeks. We had a writer cover one of those PBLA games, and he was just shocked at the level of disorganization. <laughs> uh, they, they had nothing set up. They had nothing for the media. Uh, he saw the first goal in league history scored. Nobody knew the guy's name who scored it. It was <laughs> it was just the most ridiculous setup. My entire focus is on dead and forgotten leagues and stuff, and I don't even know about it. So there you go. That's that that that's saying something. I you know maybe. Um, all right. Well, let, we I, I want to get to this particular topic because I think this is about the hottest take. Uh, I think anybody's, uh, uh, you know, uh, even on the street is going to have. And I got to get your collective and individual opinions on the Oakland A's craziness uh, going to Las Vegas. And I put it in quotes in my email to you guys, maybe because there's so many things that don't seem to be firm on this stuff, aside from the fact that the owners said, yeah, the Oakland A's, you can move to Las Vegas, but where are they going to play? Uh, how's that going to happen? Uh, there's some, tons of legal stuff going on. Uh, what are your thoughts about this from your historical perspectives of seeing teams and leagues relocate and, and not always being successful in doing so? I have my opinions, but I want to hear yours first. Well, historically, I say they should move back to Philadelphia. Historically, the wrong team. <laughs> um, Philadelphia is an American League city. Um but I could go on another half hour about that, so I'll leave it be. <laughs> yeah, 
there's something weird about I mean, am I wrong that they would be the first city to lose two of their major league teams to the same other city? Like that that that's the thing that I sort of can't get past is the idea that they would follow the Raiders there. Oh yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I would I wouldn't say the I mean, I think depending on your perspective, I'm not sure the Raiders are a smashing success thus far. I mean, certainly on the field it's questionable. But I would say the fan experience and the people who go to those games, right? There are, depending on who they're playing against each week, um, the 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 percentage of out of towners are going to those games. Financially, it might have been a win, or still might be a win. But I don't know. I'm not sure that's the. I don't know if that's the right answer. And 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 all I know is that that baseball is 81 of those dates, not uh, eight or nine, right? It's the thing is, you know, for, for so, oh, I'm sorry, Paul. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say it's interesting to me that uh, the Oakland A's, even after the departure of the Raiders, couldn't get a stadium deal done. And I think yeah. that that's what their ownership is going to say drove this decision more than anything else. They couldn't continue to play at the Coliseum and that there weren't any stadium possibilities on the horizon. Uh, Las Vegas, apparently, in some nebulous way, is willing to uh accommodate them with a different stadium and so that's the decision that they made so sorry steve i didn't mean to cut you off there no no and it's and if i was actually going on a slight tangent i mean you know we were talking earlier about how a lot of these new sports teams are are, are, are sports leagues are popping up as basically television shows because television needs content and i just i was about to say as a side note you know it wasn't that long ago when these leagues said they would never put a team in Las Vegas because they wanted nothing to do with gambling. They didn't want the temptations of gambling. And now, I mean, I think as, as these teams are wearing gambling websites and apps on their uniforms, we're seeing the sea change where, again, because it's another source of revenue and someone's got to pay for these salaries, I guess, that we're even having this discussion at baseball, of all sports, that, again, Pete Rose is not in the Hall of Fame because he committed what still committed the ultimate sin. He, you know, bet on baseball – and now they may have a team in Las Vegas. And it's just, uh, um, you know, look, Oakland's always had its problems. I mean, the team's never been accepted in Oakland. It's had two separate dynasties and just never really moved the needle there. So the fact they're finally leaving, I guess, isn't all that surprising. Um, but what's what's more surprising is, again, these leagues are now allowing teams to go to Vegas. Yeah, I, I guess uh, I was being a little bit. Not all that long ago. No, no, I, 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 I actually, I was getting a little bit more micro on this one. Like, for example, like you know, the the stadium that apparently they've agreed on, although it's not been fully voted on, is only on nine acres on the strip. Uh, you can barely fit a baseball stadium uh, of any quality and size and and uh, and uh, seats in that small parcel of land. And and frankly, where the hell are they going to play in the interim, even if they do go there? Um, to me, that's the more intriguing and future episode driven uh uh conversations that i'm interested in because there's nowhere in oakland or the bay area that's going to want to have them right and, and it, there's not many places to play aside from the minor leagues park in in, in las vegas and they already have a team there we're, like we're, these guys are going to be vagabonds and 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 just uh i, I just it, to me I, i'm intrigued uh for content for me i'm really interested but i think it's a farce Hey, Tim, uh, just to draw a comparison, Target Field in the Twin Cities, the home of the Minnesota Twins, is on eight and a half acres. So you're saying so it could be done. Okay, then. It, it can be done. It's a very intimate uh, kind of setting, but it can be done. 
Well, let's let me, let's expand on that a little bit, and then we'll get to. Then I'll sort of round up with uh, a, a, a one last big question for you guys, and 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 some predictions to sort of end it all. But um, while we're talking about possible relocation and by extension expansion, uh, I mean other other cities that pop up in the Major League Baseball uh, parlance, right? Whether that be the White Sox again or the Tampa, the the Rays, uh, every couple of years, um, Nashville, Charlotte, Portland. Um, what do you guys think about those markets uh, for baseball? And frankly, should baseball expand further than they currently have right now? Or is it saturated? I don't know. If, you know, saturated. It's, I mean, I'm always, other than the you know, what, what people call the Ponzi scheme aspect of it. You know, why last it one's in for you know, to get get gets the the money, so to speak? Well, well, well it's just, look, expansion fees, everyone's going to get more money. But, you know, it, previously you think the leagues were expanding in order to keep a rival league from popping up. And you know, I think that drove a lot of MLS expansion because they were afraid someone might try to uh, start another league that uh, might offer an alternative, including perhaps Pro-Rel. But we don't see the sexy rival leagues like we used to because essentially when free agency became a thing, the rival leagues really lost their ability to poach the best players like you know, or, even, or even compete during the draft. I mean, USFL because there wasn't really real free agency in the NFL at the time, you know, they were able to grab uh, Brian Seip and, and sign some of these guys, or the WFL, they were able to make a splash. You know, the new USFL, let's assume, if, if the new USFL was that ambitious, they really, they wouldn't poach anybody because, the, the you know, everyone's getting paid what they're worth, so to speak. So I'm not sure why unless the owners decided they wanted more money and they seem to be doing okay with TV deals and attendance and stuff, why they would want to add more teams, because I do think it will affect the product. I mean, there's only so many good players out there. I mean, it's statistically, we've seen it every time in every sport, every time there's expansion, there's a, a watering down of the product and certain stats get inflated and things like that. So look, it's one thing if a team is dying. I mean, they've moved Montreal. Uh, they talked about, I mean, years ago, they were talking about, putting a bullet in the brain of the, of the Florida Miami franchise. Um, and, and they don't. Uh, so it never happened. You know, will Tampa Bay move just because again, even though everyone said this would be the case, they finally figured out that no one wants to sit inside in the summertime um, in beautiful Florida. I don't know, but I mean, I, I'm left with one thing. Why? I can see why the NHL wants to, because there is a bit of a Ponzi aspect. The other owners want that expansion money. Because they're not getting the big TV money, um, but uh, you know, but I don't see why. Because I mean, it, everyone will say there's too many teams and and is and the product's too diluted already. And you know the I think the uphill climb for Major League Baseball expansion is that Major League Baseball is so dependent upon local revenue, uh, unlike the NFL, which gets the bulk of its revenue through its national TV contracts. Major League Baseball has to sell 81 day, home dates per team, and they need to find some kind of local broadcasting agreement in addition to some significant, pretty significant local sponsorship. So I, I think those are those are some of the uphill battles that Major League Baseball faces. The, the other argument maybe against expansion is even if you have one to three markets which may be able to host a major league baseball team, it might behoove major league baseball to keep them at arm's length 
simply so that their existing franchises, such as the Chicago White Sox, can use them as a threat to move to in order to get stadium deals done. Yep. That's as old as uh, as pro, pro sports uh, has been around. Andy, do you have any thoughts on on, on that stuff? I, and I'll throw in, what do you and others think about, you know, the NHL expanding and Atlanta for a third time has been talked about. NBA, Seattle and Las Vegas apparently seem to be locks. And there's Vegas again now with possibly all four major top tier sports. What do you think? I have to admit, I don't pay a whole lot of attention to the expansion efforts of the big four sports. Um uh, baseball is the sport that I loved the most growing up and that I played and, and, you know, I played rotisserie baseball as it was then called, you know, in, when I was in like high school and it was before they called everything fantasy sports. And, um, you know, I just remember being a kid and knowing all of the good players on every team. And now I know none of them. Yeah. <laughs> and so when I hear about expansion, I'm just like, ah, oh, this is just going to make, you know, I, my dream is I still, I love baseball so much and I want to be able to kind of reconnect with who I was when I was a kid and like turn on Sunday night baseball and see that it's the Brewers playing, you know, the Cubs and know who's good and care about the game and watch it. And when I try and do that once a year, I just, my eyes glaze over um, after about 15 minutes and I turn the channel. And part of that's just like, being an adult and modern life. But part of it is that major league baseball hasn't been able to make those games, you know, relevant and compelling in the way that people will watch out of market NFL or even NBA. I would say even MLS probably does a better job. And so the thought of there being more teams to have to keep up with is like a little daunting to me. No, Andy's got a good point. You remember like when we were younger, you when you're collecting baseball cards, you would basically if you if you got the whole set, you would be able to collect everyone who was in the league. And that's yeah. you got and you got to learn who the players were going to Andy's point. You knew who was good and who was bad. Yeah, now right, it would take like a twelve hundred card set. No one's gonna collect that. Yeah, it, yeah it, it's you know, the problem with expansion is things get less intimate in the sense that as a fan, you know who's playing throughout the rest of the league. And 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 you don't and it's I mean, I'm a Yankees fan, and uh, when I tune into a game, I don't recognize my own team's starting lineup. Uh, it's, it's, yeah, it, it's, it's, uh, you know, again, owners get money out of it, um, and I guess it's great if you're in the city that has a team, but I, I really don't know if it does a whole lot for the sport. I mean, there was a certain charm to the original six, right? That was probably too small, but even with the original six team in baseball, one for many years, eight teams in each league. I mean, there was something to be said for that. That intimacy wasn't, even for a fan out of the market, it didn't take much to know who was on what team and who was good and who was not. And you're able to follow along, even if it was only on the radio, listening to a 50,000 watt station, you know, five states away, at least you were a part of it. Now it is kind of, it's, 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 it's a lot harder. Yeah. As a Boston Red Sox fan, you know, obviously the Yankees are and always will be our biggest rival. I go to a few Sox games a year. I watch them on TV, but I feel like I know more about the Dallas Cowboys defensive line than I do about the New York Yankees starting ro rotation. And that says a lot about the way the NFL is marketed today versus the way Major League Baseball is. All right. Well, these are all great points and 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 just beyond the pale already what, what I was, uh, was hoping for this uh, conversation. So you guys have brought it, uh, which is fantastic. So here's my last question. And then I want your predictions uh, of various things. And it can be from anywhere. 
Here's my proposition slash question. Um, if you've listened to any of my episodes over the last, I don't know, two or three years, uh, my old man of the uh, yelling at the clouds uh, 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 topic uh, has been, you know, maybe we're near or at some level of apex or 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 peak uh, of pro sports, maybe cyclically right now, given all the money that's in it. And money's obviously been part of sports from day one, right? But I mean, the type of money, the private equity stuff, the centralized ownership, the multiple franchises thing, um, the uh, the celebrity investment thing, uh, the advent of gambling, what could go wrong with that? Uh, even NIL and the college level and all that kind of stuff. I just, it just feels to me, it, I don't know. Uh, and maybe this is because I just spend too much time rattling into the into the years past and trying to look for rhyming histories here. But it feels to me like there's a bubble afoot here uh, on some level. Um, I mean, you know, expanding to 32 teams. I mean, the MLS, uh, it's so such a quickly, quickly thing. And, and Steve, we haven't even talked about them bowing out of the U.S. Open Cup thing, which feels to me like a money move. Um, mm-hmm. They're closed league of investors. Right. So I guess the question for you guys is, do you feel similarly on any level that we might be kind of, I don't know, th- th- we might be near sort of the end of this cycle of, shall we call it pro sports uh, inflation? Because um, I think it's kind of it's kind of getting there. Uh, and maybe that might be wishful thinking for this stupid podcast. But uh, what do you guys think? I, I remember I said two years ago, I made the bubble remark specifically about MLS. And while I guess I'm not necessarily right, and it's still around, it's made a series of head-scratching decisions. I mean, uh, as someone who was once a fairly passionate fan of that league, the move to Apple was just – you talk about going out of your way to either chase your chase your casual audience away and milk your core audience. And now, you know, you're, again, what's past is prologue, but you, you have to know history to avoid repeating it. I mean, we're, we're teeing up soccer war, too. I mean, you've got this closed group that, that thinks they're bigger than the game. I mean, and it's always been an uncomfortable relationship in, in American soccer, the FIFA's role and, by extension, the USSF's role, uh, telling a pro league what it can or can't do on certain levels. But, you know, to the, you know they're going to they're gonna further distance themselves from – um, uh, the the soccer world. I mean, they've already done it in the eyes of many by not having promotion or relegation. I mean, I don't get as worked up about that as some people do. But now you're going to bail on the most uh, you know, the, the longest running tournament uh, the sport has. It's storied. It was part of what made MLS relevant when it first started out, um, as opposed to North, Amer- North American Soccer League, because it was playing in these tournaments that, that, that resonated beyond just the league. So I really, I mean, are they get and with the rapid expansion, um, with a league that's getting less American with each added team, uh, at some point, I mean, again, I said it two years ago, but they they, they haven't done anything that's it's changing my mind that at some point they may find themselves, you know, popping that bubble and going Tim to your your broader question, yeah, pro sports generally. I mean, at what point is it? Whether they're they're creating these leagues as television content, or whether they're genuinely trying to create it to to professionalize and, and you know, like with cycling, take an activity or pickleball, although that's already dying on the vine. If people are finding out stuff that people like to do is not necessarily the thing they want, they like to pay to watch. Um, 
but it, you know, with with ESPN plus plus and everything else, will you find the, the public saying enough? Why am I spending premium money on inferior product? Uh, why am I going to get tired of these athletes making too much? I mean, that old narrative that pops up. Uh, so, well, these guys, they make too much. You know, why do I support them? Yeah, I, I Tim, I don't disagree. You, you have this bubble feel. You just, you just can't, you know, it's hard to tell though what's going to burst first. And if it does, will it have a domino effect that winds up taking certainly these niche sports down with them or might even, you know, affect uh, some of the bigger sports? I mean, it, 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 is, is NHL as healthy as it likes to say? I mean, it's, we, uh, it, it's, I guess it's like the way with the depression. When you have an actual depression, God forbid, you see the weak businesses fall by the wayside. Is that what's going to happen? Or is the first bursting bubble going to have a chain reaction and might take out um, some sports that all of us have grown to love? It's, yeah, it's, yeah. And, and Andy, before Andy, Andy and Paul, before you guys answer, I uh, I also throw out too the just the actual cost, the average uh, average fan, right? Uh, just the cost of tickets and that kind of stuff, uh, the, the the television stuff that's changing, which is where a lot of the uh, salaries have been predicated on by the regional sports networks. I Look, I went to a Nashville FC game, uh, MLS game uh, this summer at a League's Cup thing because we were visiting Nashville on vacation. And I was just thinking, oh, let's take a look and see what it, what the cost of a jersey is in the in the in the uh, at the stadium it was one hundred and nineteen bucks. <laughs> relatively flimsy MLS jersey. One hundred nineteen bucks. I could see sixty five. But Wow. Uh, for what it's worth, I, I just came, I, I went to a Wings game today, and I guess the new novelty now are these really ugly, oversized baseball hats. I mean, they're like really oversized. Uh, and uh, it clearly has fad written all over them. $150. To I, I don't think it's a bubble, personally. I think there are, there's always bubbles within the sports marketplace. But like, I think... I think it's not a bubble. I think what it is is just that as, you know, wealth in society becomes more and more concentrated, um, it's wealthier actors, whether they're individuals or private equity firms or streaming networks that are making the bets. And the bets are just going to keep getting bigger and bigger. As they control more and more wealth, the bets that they make on these speculative things or very established properties like the Otani contract that just got signed, those bets just get bigger and bigger because the wealth involved is more and more. And that makes it feel like a bubble. But for the reasons that a lot of people have already cited, like the appeal of live television, live sports on, on television for advertisers, like I think the bets are just going to keep getting bigger. I think, but I think you know, to Tim's point about like ticket prices and apparel prices, like obviously the, the fans are, get get left behind in some of these big bets and and the price escalation and inflation that goes with it but i think that's why you're starting to see some of these models that no longer you know think about sports in the way that we thought about them growing up where it's about how many tickets you sell or whether your stadium sold or out or not they have these totally different motivations or business models for why they're making some of these bets real estate right that's that's right the yeah right or that or that, uh, you know, uh, television property is like can be a loss leader because it opens up other opportunities or whatever that might be. So, like, to me, it's just you're looking at bigger and bigger bets, but not not necessarily the prospect that those things will go away. Just when they bet bad, they might be a little more spectacular, but doesn't mean the bets are going to stop coming. But like, I, I think, you know, Steve's uh, 
example of like, I, I think you brought up a minute ago, like the open cup and like MLS saying they're not going to put their first teams in open cup is interesting. Cause I do think like that consolidation of wealth and those bigger bets, what it does is it, it makes it harder for Cinderella stories to happen anymore. Yeah. Like it makes it harder for anyone to say like, I'm going to bootstrap like, like my scrappy startup and maybe one day I'll be the, sixth big league or the you know whatever like that golf is getting like way too big to 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 bridge and i think you know one of the things that's so fun about open cup is that you can see these third division teams you know beat a major league soccer team um but i think the thing as you see more and more wealth like and bigger bets on these on the on these properties including mls clubs just as one of many examples like you have to remember that like one man's cinderella story is like 100 other people's farce and you know you watch a movie like rocky four where rocky you know turns the tables in the finale on drago and even the russians start rooting for him and of course in real life that isn't what would happen. You would just have a bunch of disgusted Russian fans. <laughs> and so, you know, when you look at something like an MLS team, like losing a open cup quarterfinal to like a third division team, like that's like a farce for those MLS fans and the MLS owners. And they're, and they're like, what is the upside of us doing this versus playing in like leagues cup against the Mexican club, you know, that brings in a lot more money. And if you lose that game, it can be viewed as just a classic clash of Titans and not us being humiliated by this team from Des Moines or Staten Island. So I, that's where I see it is just like not a bubble, but more of this ever broadening gulf between the haves and the have nots. And maybe and to amplify that, maybe we should take some comfort in this, Tim, because, you know, we're afraid it's a bubble, but, Andy's pointing out, no, I mean, sports is sports. And indeed, and I'm not taking us down this road, but you happen to mention it on your checklist that you sent over. Andy had said about how some teams, some leagues were trying to do something different. And we found like with Premier Lacrosse League, which tried to do something very different with its traveling circus approach, they're dialing it back to a traditional in-city franchise model. So yeah, maybe in the end, we, we can take comfort in that when push comes to shove, while there may be ups and downs, you know, the, the the traditional sports model we've all grown to love isn't actually going to go anywhere. Paul, what do you think? I, Last word on that. So I, I think what we're seeing is evolution. And I think it's an evolution that's being principally driven by by broadcast money. And we're still we're continuing to see this kind of transition to streaming. Uh, Steve mentioned the Apple deal for Major League Soccer where they apparently signed a, a deal with Apple that gives them quite a bit of cash, but takes away a lot of the accessibility of that league for a casual fan, for somebody who might catch a game on maybe a Fox sports station and then get into it. So you're taking away some of that at the same time. They did mix in some traditional broadcasts, uh, after the Apple TV deal was announced, but you're you're continuing to see this. How does this work? How does this work for the broadcasters who are losing billions of dollars right now on their streaming platforms? How does it work for the teams and the leagues who are really reliant on those revenues 
to really reach a certain level. I mean, if you're going to go beyond the level of something like the indoor football league that we talked about earlier, where you can only pay players a couple hundred bucks a game, you've got to bring in some outside money. You can't be simply reliant on the gate. With the USFL, you're seeing them not reliant on the gate at all. The people are essentially props. They sell $10 tickets. And if you want to sit in the end zones in Memphis, you can do so for like three three bucks a game if you buy a season ticket. They're they're only there to look good on TV. They're they're not reliant on their gate revenue at all. So you're seeing a lot of, I think, experimentation on does this work for us? Uh, this touring model that we mentioned with the Premier Lacrosse League, and now they're going to do it. This next season is really more of a hybrid where they'll they'll play in each home market uh, for a weekend, and then the home market will have two games that weekend. But they're kind of doing the tour is the the touring thing. But really, the the impetus is to get into home markets. So it it almost looks like okay, that touring thing didn't totally work. Um, so we got to we got to transition to what we really wanted to stay away from in the beginning. So you know, I think we're continuing to see this evolution, uh, and nobody knows where it's going to lead yet. Now, what could turn that into a bubble? is one thing that Steve mentioned, which would be a depression or, or deep recession where weak businesses really do start to fail. Or if we see a gambling scandal or multiple gambling scandals, yeah. I think that that flips mm-hmm. the conversation very quickly. And I can't even imagine that ever happening, Paul. How dare you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know. Isn't it? Isn't it funny where you have such um, a stretch? So many millions of dollars riding on bets every week. And yet we're supposed to believe that NFL calls are beyond the beyond reproach. Uh, you know, sometimes it's a human error. You looked at the last two minutes of that Kansas City Green Bay game where the officials literally blew every other play on that drive. <laughs> Isn't there any further scrutiny that's deserved simply because of the embrace of gambling now? And that, that, that would be my concern is that somebody gives into the temptation and casts a pall over all professional sports. All right, guys. How about some predictions for 2024 or, or, or nearby? Any, any thoughts about what you uh, might see in the realm of pro sports? It could be the defunct world, any kinds of things that you think are, you know, that you're paying attention to that you're. Uh, worried about or you think is going to happen on the good or or, or negative side, uh, here's your chance to kind of uh, play Nostra, <clears throat> Nostradamus and uh, convince us to do this episode again next year to uh, hold you to account. Well, I, I'm going to take the layup then if nobody else will go first, but we talked about the Arena Football League earlier. They will not, uh, they will not play all their games. If they get through the season at all, it'll be shortened and with multiple teams not finishing. Like that's if I had to make one bet, that would be it. I think I think on the positive side, I think the NWSL will continue to trend upward because they have this great new expansion team coming in in Bay Area that should be as strong as the the very strong West Coast franchises they already have. So there's one there's one uh, negative critical one and one positive one for you. Yeah, Andy kind of stole my answer because of the Arena <laughs> Football League, but uh, I will also I will also go way out on a limb here and uh, predict that 
Alternative outdoor professional football will also be tremendously unprofitable, albeit with deeper pockets and more patience behind it. Uh, so those would those would kind of uh, have my attention right there. Uh, you know, I, in NWSL, uh, one thing we haven't mentioned is the them getting a stadium built in Kansas City. Uh, to me, this is where men's outdoor soccer really took off is when they were able to get municipalities to put skin in the game by building stadiums. And now you have a women's team that's been able to do that. So we'll kind of see who bites next uh, for an NWSL stadium. And I guess I do have one after all. There I you think, go. That's more I like think, it, Steve. I, now that I think about it, I think the success, uh, the relative success of the NBA in-season tournament, uh, borrowing, borrowing, as we all know from, league cup concepts that we've seen in soccer is going to incentivize the NBA to maybe take the next next step and start embracing the concept of perhaps some kind of international series. Um, it'll be, uh, th there may be some reluctance because as Andy pointed out with the MLS open cup thing, there's very little incentive for say the Lakers to want to be in a, in an, in an international tournament and then get beaten by Real Madrid. But I think as inter, on the, uh, at the international stage, as the U.S. team is less dominant, as other countries have really caught up, that I think the NBA may feel almost compelled to say, you know, it's time for us to put ourselves out there and, and we're going to start playing. I mean, we're already doing these preseason games, but often against really weak teams, you know. Uh, we're going to start playing against some of the best Euro league teams and we're going to we're going to start embracing the international nature of of, uh, of basketball and uh, and see if that will grow the nba uh, as a result yeah look i guess i wish i wish i had one i really don't i kind of kind of duped you into that <laughs> I, I, I all the only prediction i'll make is that um we're probably uh, you know and i don't I, I have to be careful as i say this i'm not sure i'm ever going to run out of topics so if it's a good thing or a bad thing for anybody who listens to this show on a great level, um, I don't know. It just feels like there are plenty more stories to be had uh, in the uh, in the months and years ahead. And um, whether that's, uh, you know, the NHL finally giving up on Arizona or whatever market or situation occurs for the next couple of years for the A's as they vagabond their way from Oakland, maybe to Las Vegas. Um, you know, I'm intrigued with, uh, the new television contracts that NASCAR has and the various splitting of all those and whether that generates any newfound interest and, and streaming stories and that kind of stuff. And, you know, there's slam ball it's back. Uh, I know Andy's a huge fan of slam ball. Uh, mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, maybe that turns into something or not. I, 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 the one thing I would like to see, and this is less a prediction than anything else. And, and I've got some friends in some of the, in the executive suites of, of ESPN, I think there should be an ESPN Ocho channel, okay? I know they do uh, a block, you know, and they do a, like a 24-hour uh, kind of window on certain weekends and that kind of stuff. But uh, Slam Ball and uh, uh, National Pillow Fighting League and the World Chase Tag and all that kind of stuff, um, to me, endlessly fascinating. Um, hardly viable, but certainly interesting. But I think in it, you could create a fast uh, streaming channel, uh, label it ESPN Ocho, and... Um, I don't know, to, and just have it uh, and give that uh, a, a place for uh, various niche leagues and um, potential sports. Uh, I think it's a I think it's a, a, a no brainer. 
and people will watch it on a on a regular basis and uh, and ad support it too. But um, anybody from ESPN that's listening, there's your idea. Go ahead. I I get ten percent. As long as you want to push into the media realm, I think I, another prediction is that there will be outlets like what you know the husk of Sports Illustrated that continue to humiliate themselves over the next year with AI produced garbage that make oh. that sort of you know sports coverage and a lot of the digital sites just completely unreadable. Um, that sounds and, like Forbes, Forbes and USA Today too. Yeah. And and I think on the positive side, I think if people are looking for to get coverage, I think nobody does a better job than the group at Defector, which is that the ex staff of Deadspin who who left when private equity firm took over their blog, left en masse and started their own bootstrapped um, su- successor site called Defector. And they, they're doing the best sports writing on the internet now. I mean, where else are you going to find just steaming hot takes on teams that don't exist anymore and leagues that have come and gone? Only here, friends, only here on this here little show. And uh, that's why we do this every week. (laughs) Who knows why? (laughs) But we have fun doing it. And uh, I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as uh, as I did uh, having it. Um, Let's see. You can follow uh, Andy Crossley uh, at his uh, website, uh, arguably on the Mount Rushmore of Forgotten Sports Leagues and Teams and stuff. It is called funwhileitlasted.net. Uh, if you have never been there, check it out. If you have not bookmarked it but, uh, yet, you should do that. Just a, a treasure trove of goodness about all things forgotten and defunct and relocated and then some in professional sports. An inspiration that site is funwhileitlasted.net. Steve Holroyd, he is a labor lawyer by day, but by night, uh oh, watch out, friends. Lock your doors, wake the neighbors, phone the kids. Uh, you will see him online in various places, such as that lacrosse website that uh, goes way deep into indoor and outdoor professional lacrosse in this country called crosscheck.com c-r-o-s-s-e get it crosscheck.com you can also follow him on various social feeds uh, opining on things like old-timey basketball you can find uh, his uh, thoughts there on x slash twitter at in the low post that's his handle there perhaps on uh, his takes on soccer uh, which he is falling out of love uh, uh, around which you heard in his commentary uh, on Twitter X, you'll find him at Soccer Maven. M as in Mary, V as in Victor, N as in Nancy, at Soccer Maven. Uh, he's got a couple of other ones, too. I think he's got a, a cricket one, too. And also a website uh, that has a, a holding page, but you can guess guess what it's going to be about uh, that's going to be launching very soon in the new year called phillyclassics.com. So Philadelphia Fury fans, Philadelphia Fever fans, Philadelphia Bell fans, and and many more. I uh, can look out for those memories to come on that website in 2024. And last but not least, our pal Paul Reitz, who, uh, besides being sort of our one of our kindred souls in the old USFL uh, memories there, uh, has two uh, amazing sites that we refer to on a regular basis that are also very much worth your time. One is called Minor League. No, sorry. It's about minor league sports and stuff. It's called Our Sports Central. 
sportscentral.com, OurSportsCentral.com. It's minor league sports news and alternative sports leagues uh, news uh, and commentary and, and follow those teams and the leagues and then the, the various uh, uh, franchises that are coming and going and all that kind of stuff there. Uh, and that's an awesome site. And uh, you will also enjoy uh, his other site, StatsCrew.com. StatsCrew.com. And uh, it's a, a, a gigantic site and growing all the time. Uh, for example, featuring lots of different leagues that have uh, come and gone. Uh, let's say you're searching for statistics from the old Eagle Pro Box Lacrosse League. Uh, maybe a World Team Tennis uh, information. Perhaps uh, you are looking for the Internet's largest selection of U.S. outdoor and indoor soccer statistics. This is the place to go. It's statscrew.com. Um, all of those great things from our great guests this week. We thank Andy and Steve and Paul. And, of course, you, our wonderful listeners. Have a, a wonderful Christmas day if you're listening to this uh, episode in real time or Christmas week or whatever other holidays you might have been have been or are celebrating. Uh, we wish you nothing but the best. Uh, and we will see you in the new year. Uh, we thank you for listening. It's been a fun 2023 and hopefully more excitement to come in 2024. Until then, take care of yourselves and please drive safely and enjoy the rest of the holidays. Take care. Bye-bye.
to sing 